Welcome to Girls on Film with Joe Batant and Sweet Michael. Today we're talking about, uh, on our pilot episode, the film 9 to 5, starring uh, this Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, and Lily Tomlin. It'll be a real shit show. I don't know why I just talk shit on our pilot episode. Sweet Michael, hello, by the way. Hello. I don't know if you know this, but I actually formally dropped the sweet from my name. Oh, you are? Oh, so you're just Michael now? I'm just Michael. Oh, yeah, because I know there was discussion about uh, what we were going to call you. I guess we never actually formally... Uh, so let's just we do the recording. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> no, we can keep no, it. No, we can keep I also it. hate that I said it's a shit show. Why, why did I say that? You can say that. All right. I'm going to keep it in then for the pilot episode. I call it the, the, pilot. the brand new episode of a show, and I call it a shit show <laughs> during the theme song. By the way... Nothing bad happened during the episode. There was like even setting it up, nothing bad happened. Everything happened the way it should. I'm all, oh, this fucking shit show. Anyway, hi Michael, how are you? I'm good. How are you? You know, it's so funny. I I I uh, uh, I brought up that I I brought Sweet Michael up to my mom the other day, and she was like, "Who's Sweet Michael?" And I go, "My friend Michael." And she goes, "Why do you call him Sweet? That's awful. It's offensive." She thought it was really offensive that I called you Sweet. I know. She called me. That's why I dropped it from my name. <laughs> Did you know that really? No. <laughs> All right. So for everyone, you know, we have a lot of people who are listening who listen to me on RuPaul's Drag Race Recap or they listen on Catching Up. But you, on, and now for those of you who don't know us from any of these shows, and, you know, you know me and Michael just as me and Michael, you know, Joe and Michael. But for the for the people who have heard who have come over here from RuPaul's Drag Race recap or who have come over here from Catching Up you're just like a myth you're a legend no one's actually ever heard you that's true but i do exist yeah do you want to talk a little bit about our history I'll, and I'll let because people people should, should get to hear you talk. Otherwise, I'll just talk the whole show. <laughs> so yeah, so I met Joe in 2013 through a mutual friend, mm-hmm. and we just went to get coffee together because he was like really wanted me to meet you, um, and we hit it off as you do with Joe, and then stayed in communication and then there was like maybe a year or two where we didn't really talk and then after i moved to dc from miami we just started talking again and now we talk every day you know what's so funny is i remember after the first time i met you i we was talking to this mutual friend and i i don't think well i don't know it's hard to tell because i could go either way i could say like what did, what did michael think of me or i could have been <laughs> like who you know, I can't either remember which way it was, right? But I remember that mutual friend telling me because I remember, I remember us hanging out, and I remember thinking you were very, very quiet around me, and because um, it was, it was a big group of us. We went around L.A. and saw sights in L.A. Oh no, that was the coffee trip. No, the coffee. Well, I came back twice that summer. The first time was the oh. coffee, and the second time uh, you took us on a taco tour. Oh really? I thought. Yeah. Michael, I am not joking. I thought like. I had coffee with you on Tuesday, and on Wednesday we went on a taco tour. <laughs> That's just how fast time flies, Joe. Oh, you're kidding. Okay. 
So anyway, I thought it, maybe it was the taco tour, or maybe it was the coffee place. One of the times when you and I first met, I remember the mutual friend. What I said, oh well, Michael was very quiet around me. He didn't. Say, I think. Oh, I know what it was. I think the friend said, oh, Michael really liked you, and I was like, he did. He was so quiet around me, and he said, now I don't think you. I don't know if you've had, you and I have ever talked about this. He was like, yeah. He was just very, very, he was quiet around you because he was very intimidated by you, which anytime people say that, I'm always amused by that. I I think I'm the least intimidating person ever lived. But um, he goes, he was very intimidated by you because uh, he had never met someone who was just so openly gay and just talked about gay things and said gay things. (laughs) <laughs> and and was just so open about being gay. So you found it very, I don't know, well, maybe you could tell me, you can tell me how you felt during all that. No, I mean, I actually don't really remember that, but it's not, it wasn't necessarily about being gay. It was just, you were so open about everything. Mm-hmm. You just like, you're authentically you. And I, I'm the type of person where, you know, I have a little bit of a shell and you kind of have to get through that. And then once I get to know you, I'm a lot more open. And everyone should know, even though that people are just hearing you for the first time on this pilot episode, whether they come from another show or not, that you and I talk, well, not on the weekends, but every weekday, almost every day. And if you, if, and people should know this, I don't think this has ever come up on any show. If I don't hear from you in like two days, I'm already, I'm already asking your coworkers, oh my God, is Michael mad at me? What did I do? How did Michael's mad at me? No, I mean, time just flies. I don't always remember, but um, no, I, we talk pretty much whenever we can. Now, uh, I, I, I do want to say this. So the premise of this show, let's talk about what the premise of Girls on Film is, is I am a much more experienced gay man, not because I'm so much more, like, I can really tell you, Michael already has more experience than me as in a relationship than I've ever had, but more, I'm an I'm older than you as a gay man, and I'm so much more steeped in gay culture as a result. And so the, the premise of the show is that I know a lot of these films that are important to gay men, and we'll, we'll discuss this in a second, but you're not necessarily as learned in that field, correct? Correct. No, I mean, I grew up in the South and in a pretty conservative area, so I was not really introduced to a lot of gay culture, gay films, gay icons until much later on. I also want everyone to know, you know, Michael and I worked out the details of what was going to happen today uh, in terms of uh, recording. But the one thing I didn't make sure of is that Michael had headphones that he could plug into this microphone. Michael borrowed this microphone. So Michael had, let's just look like a minute before we're supposed to record. Michael had to borrow these, and not borrow, he, he couldn't find headphones in his house. What? Please tell everyone what the one set of headphones you had in your house, what, what they are, what you're wearing right now. So I just moved, so I don't have all of my stuff over here, and I couldn't find my, like, Bluetooth headphones that I usually use. Um, so all I have are this pair of, like, nighttime blindfolds that also have, like, earbuds built into them so you can listen to things when you fall asleep because sometimes i listen to podcasts when i fall asleep uh it helps me fall asleep you know like catching up (laughs) and uh (laughs) and so yeah i currently have those on i'm not blinded i have them pulled up like a headband but it works now you really do look like norma desmond in one scene uh i think it's a scene when uh we're gonna do sunset boulevard 
Uh, Norma Desmond is a character from the film Sunset Boulevard for those young gays who are listening. And we're doing that very, very soon, Sunset Boulevard. But you look like her in one of the scenes where she meets uh, Joe... I can't remember what his last name is, but the main the, the main character, when she meets Joe, uh, and you, you look like Norma... All you need is the sunglasses and the <laughs> caftan, and Norma Desmond right now. Well, maybe it's not unintentional. Maybe it's not. Maybe you should wear those in, in honor for Sunset Boulevard. I will. But, I'll definitely bring them back. But the but the movie we're talking about today. So let me because because we've already on 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 the RuPaul's Drag Race recap side, Michael. You should know this. We've already gotten messages from people with suggestions of films, and I think I need to be a little clearer what kind of films we're thinking of here. I'm thinking about gay films that are important. I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Rewind. I'm thinking about films that are important to gay culture, but weren't necessarily created for great gay culture. Is that gay culture has latched onto them as important works of film and are important to gay culture. So, like, I've gotten a lot of requests for uh, Paris is Burning or um, what's another one people were asking for a lot. But, like, films that were meant uh, that are about gay people and meant for gay people. And it's not to say we won't cover those in another version of the show. But right now, the, the podcast is, is, is focused on films that were meant for a general audience that gay men have latched onto. And that's why today it's 9 to 5. And usually I'll have some sort of script or whatever. But I didn't want, also, Michael, I didn't want there to be a script. And, and I'm being honest here. If I wrote a script for this episode, one, it might sound like RuPaul's Drag Race recap, and two, it would make this my show, and it really is our show. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this episode is us figuring out what we want it to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, and I, so I want the structure to be formed by us rather than, Michael, this is what the show is, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk, and then you're going to talk. I don't want it to be that. It's it just as much your show as my show. By the way, I RuPaul's Drag Race recap. That's my show. Okay. So, <laughs> and Taylor and Evan now are shaking their fists in the car. Okay. Um, all right. So, the film we're doing today is 9 to 5. I wanted to start with 9 to 5 because I think it's a perfect... This is the, this is the one... And you know what I was thinking about, too? I'm sorry. I don't want to make but tangents here. You know what I was thinking about? What? Maybe after we've done a four or five of these... Maybe we should switch to, I do a film that I think you should listen, you should watch, watch, but maybe there's a film, like, for instance, I probably wouldn't think of Mean Girls, but you would. Right. Yeah, no, there's definitely a few that I could think of, kind of, from more of my generation, that would be fun to cover. Um, that, or also, like, horribly made gay films, like, films oh, that God. were meant for gay people, but are just so bad. Yeah, well, I, I have an idea for those, but uh, we'll get to those later. But yes, though, that is a very, very good idea. I want everyone to know that um, I, this is so funny, I forgot that we're on camera. I don't usually talk on camera, and I realized at a certain point I was making disgusting poses with the microphone like there was one point where i like lifted the microphone and i leaned back in the chair that's how i talk when i'm not knowing people are watching and then i realize you and i are looking at each other on camera right now right no i liked it it was a really organic approach i kind of want now i'm going to pick up my microphone and just move around with it okay but i'm more expanding be careful you could okay, you're sounding really it. good get where you're comfortable i want you to get where you're are you comfortable there yeah okay. also i had this in the office today um, you know, because I borrowed it. It's from, a mic- so everyone should know it's a microphone that looks like a giant penis. It does. Yes, that was the comment that I got as everyone came into my office. Was no. that looks like a giant penis? 
and then you stuck out of your ass. But here's the I did. thing. Yeah. That's why I said, why do you think I have it? <laughs> and they, they're like, why does it smell? <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Here's what I don't get. Is the person you borrowed it from is one of my co-hosts on RuPaul's Drag Race Recap. Why do you sound already infinitely better than he does? Like in terms of sound quality? Yes, your sound quality is phenomenal. And um, I have really good internet speed. No, that's, that's, but the way the, pro- the microphone's processing your voice. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, let's, but let's get to it. Let's talk about 9 to 5. It's a film directed by Colin Higgins, co-written by Colin Higgins. We'll talk about Colin Higgins after we get to the plot. But 9 to 5, starring Jane, Tom, Jane Tomlin, Jane Fonda, <laughs> Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton. Also, Dabney Coleman. And also known as the prequel to Grace and Frankie, the Netflix hit show. <laughs> known as the prequel to Frank and Gracie. Is that what it's called? I think it's great. No. Grace and Frankie. Oh, okay. Um, and yes, you're right, actually. It kind of is, actually. So yeah. the, the first things first, before we get into the plot, I have, and guys, I'm being honest, it's been hard because Michael and I do talk a lot. It's been hard for us, for him, for us to keep this from each other because I've wanted to talk about this film. Mike, I, don't, I just called you Mike. I'm like, who the fuck's Mike? Michael? Well, you know, some people actually do call me Mike. And, and it, I, everyone that I know that calls me Michael, it blows their mind that someone would call me Mike. I can't believe it. I can't, you, you look like, again, Norma Desmond. I can't, you're not a Mike. Anyway, <laughs> my brother, who fucking pounds a beer in three seconds and crushes it with a can with his head, he's a Mike. Anyway. Yeah, that's what most people think of as a Mike. I mean, and also, you know, when I, I used to be a Michelle at one point. You're going to be Michelle again by the end of this episode. But let me, <laughs> but I'm dying to know now. Here we go. The, I need to know nine to five, important to gay men, important to gay culture. We love this movie, even though it's not about gay people at all. Michael, what was your, give me a review. I loved this film. <gasps> oh my God. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. <laughs> Almost as much as I love my sewing machine. <laughs> Everyone should know that when I first met Michael, he reminded me of the gay kid from the last episode of the, whatever season of Curb Your Enthusiasm is when um, Larry buys Larry. Well, Larry's dating a woman that has a gay child, and no one will admit that the kid's gay when the kid's super gay. So that's a quote from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay, but I want to hear about nine to five. So give me your thoughts. We're going to go through the plot. We're going to go through it. But give me your your like thirty second review of nine to five. What you loved about it. I loved all of the like minor characters. Uh-huh. Um, one of my favorites was uh, Margaret, the alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, everyone goes to the bar and like she just goes, add a girl. <laughs> and then at the end, she just, just suddenly transformed. Into, like... <laughs> but, you know, I, have, I actually have a funny moment that happened because I actually watched this with my partner. Mm-hmm. And he... Is watching that and he goes, Isn't she in 30 Rock? And I was like, Which character, Margaret? He thought that she was Kathy, who played Devin Banks' wife. I don't know if you remember her, but I had to be like, No, this is this movie was made in 1980. Who's Devin Banks? I don't remember him. He was like Jack's like enemy character. Oh, 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 played by Paul Shear. Um, and he had a wife and but yeah, that yeah, she would have been. Can, but Thirty Rock did use a lot of these characters. Yeah, I feel Thirty Rock's almost a TV show made for gay people. So, yeah, like, pretty much. Yeah, so um, 
That's interesting that you say that. Okay, so he th- he thought that it was like Paul Shear's wife on that show. Who did play her? Do you know? Um, well, I the show's a failure. Name. You don't have the answer. The show's a failure. <laughs> That's a, you said it was going to be a shit show, yeah. Joe, and this well, is what no, it's turning no, into. No, the show's a shit show. Then, you <laughs> you make your person. own destiny. Yeah. You don't know the person that played Devin Banks' wife. Okay, so why don't we jump into the plot? It wasn't Paul Shear. It was... Um... Oh, Jax! Ugh. You know what the confusion was? You know what the confusion was? What? The guy that plays Kenneth, Oh. his name in real life is Jack. So when you said Jack, his name's Jack McBrayer. So when you said Kenneth, I immediately jumped to his real name, Jack. And his nemesis was played by Paul Shear. He was the other NBC page. Oh, okay. No, this is Will Arnett. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Will Arnett, who's secretly gay. Yeah. Who did play his wife? I All will right. find out. What a fucking shit show. While you play that, you know, why don't we jump into this with actually the theme from 9 to 5. Sung by uh, gay icon Dolly Parton. This is the music we're going to play while Michael looks it up. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen. Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. In the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from 9 to 5 Working 9 to 5 Sorry, it took me longer because I was looking up the 9 to 5 Wikipedia page, and it actually actually gave me an article about working actually 9 to 5. Um, I know. I noticed that, too, when I would, like, look it up before I watched the movie. It was just everything about work hours. (laughs) I know. I was like, what? Okay. So here's what we're going to do again. Like I said, I I wanted to – I want us to form this show. So I want to go through the plot. I'm going to be very open and tell you that I'm literally reading the plot summary from Wikipedia. But we'll stop along the way and talk about favorite moments. By the way, Kathy was played by Marceline Hugo. Oh, and who was Margaret played by? Margaret Foster, the old lush. Um, you didn't tell me to look that up. <laughs> All right. So Judy Burnley, played by Jane Fonda, is forced to find work after her husband, Dick, runs off with his secretary. Uh, Judy finds employment as a secretary at Consolidated Companies, which we never actually find out what they do. They clearly do some sort of purchasing or some, because it's, a, it's an important plot point later. But, well, I think that's the point, is that like it could be any company. It could be any company. Do you have an answer for here played with Margaret on 9 to 5? I imagine I could just look right here on the, in, on the Wikipedia page. Yeah, you're page. the one who has it up. Yeah, I'm the one that has it up. <laughs> oh, Peggy Pope. Peggy, Peggy Pope. Oh, Peggy Pope actually is in, I believe, the film Funny Farm with Chevy Chase, which I liked her in that too, but we'll come back to that in a second. All right. So the senior office supervisor, Violet Newstead, that's played by Lily Tomlin, introduces Judy to the company and staff, including mailroom clerk Eddie. Okay, Eddie, he comes back. I don't even know why he's in the Wikipedia article. He's just pissed that he got passed over for a full-time real job there. And they hired 
um, Jane Fonda instead. But then you just see him later when they've made changes to the like it's very throwaway. You'd have to like because oh, I didn't even remember yeah, seeing him later on. Yeah, because I've seen the movie a hundred times and I watched <laughs> it again this afternoon and loved it even more. I just the movie gets better and better every time I watch this movie. <laughs> um, you see him later, so you recognize. Oh, that guy is later. And, and actually, this time in watching it, I will say. Because now I was watching it because I knew how to – I had to watch it in a more analytical way. No one's going to talk about it. And the screenwriting here is so on point. It's so good in little tiny ways. How Do you know the concept in theater of Chekhov's gun, Michael? No, I don't. It's a very simple theater concept. It's by Anton Chekhov. And he basically said that if you ever bring in a gun on stage, then you have to use it. Okay, so like in other words, you wouldn't just say, "Here's a gun," and then like never <laughs> reference it again. That would be very, very bad dramatic writing. And so, obviously, the art and the art of writing is to introduce those those guns, those Chekhov guns, but make them as subtle as possible. And this movie does it so many times. There are so many little hints and things that they say that are about to happen that are done so well that I was as a screenwriter and as just a person who appreciates good screenwriting. I was in love with how they well, did it. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. I was actually looking that up earlier and this director wouldn't let the screenwriter on set. Colin Higgins. Of course he's a big old yeah. Nelly gay who probably was like, <laughs> well, he was one of the coach. There was a, there was a version before this and then he took it and rewrote it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, she meet she meets uh, Eddie the mail clerk. Then she meets a very important character, even though she's minor. You're right, the per- Margaret Foster, the alcoholic. Okay, and then she also meets Franklin Hart Jr., played by Dabney Coleman, who I think is amazing, still alive, not acting anymore, but still alive. And he's the opportunistic boss. He's the arch enemy, right? She also meets, and I love this character too, Roz Keith. Yeah, uh, the kiss up assistant. Yeah, she was my like other favorite character minor character (laughs) she's franklin hart's executive assistant so violet reveals to judy so lily tomlin reveals to jane fonda that franklin hart is supposedly involved with uh the secretary doralee rhodes played by dolly parton okay we also learn in the film as we watch it that hart exploits and mistreats his female subordinates by backstabbing them, and he makes sexist remarks. He, more backstabbing Violet, Lily Tomlin. Because what you learn, I don't think they say... Well, let me finish this paragraph. He takes credit for Violet's ideas, cruelly yells and threatens Judy on her first day after an equipment malfunction. Oh, with the copy machine. An epic scene in the film. And sexually harasses Doralee, spreading rumors about an affair that never happened. Okay. Um. So this paragraph doesn't mention it, but... uh. You learn that she, that Violet, Lily Tomlin, trained Franklin Hart. And then he was, she was passed over and he became her boss. And so she's sort of kind of bitter about that. But we also learn that she's waiting for promotion uh, that she's due. Uh, any thoughts? Now, What we, I guess because they mention it here. What were your thoughts on any of those scenes? Particularly, I guess, the copy machine scene where the copy machine goes crazy on Jane Fonda. They had copy machines in 1980. Oh my god! Did you see how gigantic that copy it machine was scene? Massive, and it came out in little different divider sections. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it kind of resonates because like we had some new people at work that I was training recently, and it can be really frustrating when they first start. Um, but I just, I don't know. I loved all the characters. I loved the introductions. Um, I loved the 
very beginning when they're all hitting their alarms, all oh, the yeah. different like nail colors, you know, all the different. <laughs> what? You, you know what's so interesting? This is, again, another weird fact. So the, the movie supposedly takes place in L.A. That's in downtown L.A. Actually, strangely, whenever you see them leave the building, mm-hmm. when they're driving out in various scenes, it's literally you can see my friend's apartment. Oh, really? Downtown. I yeah. thought it was New York. No, no, no. It's downtown Los Angeles. And uh, there's a lot, of, even though it never says where it is, the, mm-hmm. a lot of the scenes are in L.A. They're driving in L.A. streets. But that very opening scene before we meet Jane Fonda, mm-hmm. that's all filmed in San Francisco for some bizarre reason. So those those street walking, those scenes, the scenes where they're walking in the street going to work and stuff like that, that's in San Francisco. Huh. But, uh, yeah. So anyway, so... So that so that's what that was sort of your opinion there on the on those early. Uh, there's nothing big there. The copy machine scene. Did you think it was funny? Because they, they come back to it later. I mean, I thought it was funny. There wasn't anything like crazy about them that I thought. All right. When Violet discovers that a promotion she was hoping to receive was instead given to a man because of sexist hiring practices, uh, she confronts Hart about it as well as the rumors about Doralee. Because remember, none of the which is sort of. What about that that nobody would talk to Doralee because they thought that she was having an affair with Franklin Hart I felt so bad for her she was such a sweetheart yeah and didn't understand why you know no one would talk to her um but I love that it took like this explosion for her to find out like poor thing didn't even realize it she just yeah everyone was just talking shit yeah because what they didn't mention this here is uh Franklin Hart has um Violet which is played by Lily Tomlin by Dolly Parton a scarf, but she he thinks it's for Hart's wife, and then she sees Dolly Parton wearing the scarf, and she's like, "Oh, that fucking bitch," you know. Yeah, and she has to get his coffee all the time. She gets his coffee all the time. Yeah, and they, big again, part, a big <laughs> part of this because they all he wants skinny and sweet, and it it's in a yellow box. Um. So anyway, uh, so she confronts Hart about this losing the promotion, but also the rumors about Dora Lee played by Dolly Parton, who enters Hart's office just in time to hear and now realizes why she has become unpopular with the other secretaries. Violet storms off, say, saying that she needs a drink. That's when... Atta girl. Atta girl. Dora Lee takes Hart to ask, task over his transgressions, informing him that she keeps a gun in her purse and will turn him from a rooster to a hen with one shot if his sexist behavior continues. She then also leaves stating that she needs a drink. Atta girl. <laughs> Judy, upset over the firing of... Mom- okay, so then what happens is um, Roz comes into the office and tells Mr. Hart that she heard in the bathroom that Maria Delgado um, knew their salaries. And so Dabney Coleman is like, fire her. And so... She- well, they were speculating on the salaries. Yes. Yeah, and just- they were like sharing what their own salaries were. Oh, yeah, yeah. So like- there's like this fear of unionizing. Oh, oh I didn't even get that. Yeah, that's they were trying what? to like stop a union. Oh, that's why. I was like, that's kind of. What does she care if she's speculating about the? U- oh, I didn't even understand that. All right, so then they fire Maria Delgado, and then Maria Delgado literally says, "We should never hear in a movie like I promised myself I wouldn't cry." We're right. packing up her desk, right? And then fucking Jane Fonda gets so pissed. So Judy, that's Jane Fonda, upset over the firing of Maria, a dedicated employee, due to speculating about upper management salaries overheard by Roz, who had been eavesdropping in the ladies' room. Judy joins Violet and Dora Lee in storming out of the office, and the three women drown their sorrows at the local bar before retiring to Dora Lee's house to smoke a jay. 
given to Violet by her teenage son. Which you know, when they showed that scene with the teenage son, mm-hmm. I was thinking about he was so cute. But I was thinking how he'd be like in his fifties now. I know. I kind of we should look him up and see what he looks like. Okay, uh, you look him up. Uh, while there, the beginning of their friendship forms. And they share fantasies of getting revenge on Mr. Hart. Judy wants to hunt him down like an animal in a classic mobster scenario. Doralee wants to rope him like a steer in a western scenario. And Violet wants to poison him in a twisted Snow White style scenario. Uh, Michael, what information do you have from us about for us about the sun? I'll bet you it's the not... only movie he ever made. You what? I bet it's the only movie he ever made. <laughs> Probably. He's such like a 1970s twink. I know, right? Um, can you hear that dog barking? Is it your dog? No, it's the one next door. Does your dog get mad when other dogs bark? Not this one because he's used to it. But if he hears another one, he'll let out a little, small little bark. Oh. Um. Okay, full cast. So while you talk about that, it's so funny because it was... I, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on the whole marijuana scene. I have my own weird memories as a child because this is a movie that my parents watched when I was a child and I watched it with them and I have my own thoughts about this particular segment of the film. But I, I want to know what your thoughts on the, on this were after you find out what happened to the guy who played the son. Okay, so his name was David Price. Mm-hmm. How old is he now? And... Oh my God. So everyone should know... Cute. <laughs> he's basically yeah he's a guy in his mid 50s yeah he's a guy and who... probably bad teeth because he's not smiling with his mouth open um i loved the weed scene because did you notice the chain links that they were building that never showed them build it they had it like on their head and on their I, body yeah, saw, and every saw... time they went into uh you know that alternate story about how each the dream world where each one of them killed uh Frank, Frank Hart. Hart. Yeah. There were every time they flashback, it was just more and more chains that they had made. Well then they're also like after Jane Fonda scene, they're eating a tremendous amount of food for like three small women. There's like there's like a whole feast in front of them. Yeah, it's very like what people think stoners do. <laughs> I kind of feel though it was very true to life for stoners in the seventies. Don't you think? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> So I happen to remember this scene. In fact, it's one of this this, this whole sequence here. Um, I remember it vividly because as a child, strangely, particularly Jane Fonda's scene and Lily Tomlin's scene, scared the living shit out of me. Really? Because, well, I was very young. I was, gosh, I was probably like four or five when the movie came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then by the time it came out on video, I was probably like six or seven. Okay, my parents were watching it. And God, it took them a long time to record videos back then. No, you, you, okay, this is okay. Gay history. Video, no, DV, uh, video cassettes of movies didn't come out for like until like two years after the movie came out. There was see, okay, this is where we're gonna do like old people history here. <laughs> there was a big war that the film industry was very frightened by the videotape industry and the rental movie, the movie rental business. Okay, particularly. I should I should rephrase. I think it took, you could buy them. They were very very expensive to buy. Mm-hmm. I remember. I think I remember buying my dad buying the ET videotape years after it came out, like in the mid eighties, and it was a hundred dollars. 
for the video cassette, for the videotape. It was $100. And that was $100 in the 80s. So they were very, very, very expensive. And also they took years, years, multiple years before they came out on videotape after being in the theaters. After the theatrical release, they came out years, some some even longer. I think Star Wars didn't come out until the 90s on video cassette. It like it was a it took a long time, okay? And I think you could buy them before you rented them. I was very young then. So the point mm-hmm. is, I it was probably about two or three years after it came out in the theaters that I actually saw it on videotape. And in the scene, you know, the scene with Jane Fonda when she like sh- sh- or is it don't, where's the one where his head is on the wall? It's with Jane Fonda, right? That's Jane Fonda. That's Judy. Yeah. yeah. That's Judy shoots him and with a gun, and then his head is mounted on the wall. That scared the shit out of me as a kid. And also just like, it was something about me as a child. That Mary Poppins uh, does this to me too, where I was frightened by real people interacting with animation. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So the scene, violet scene was not a, a fun one for you. Yeah, so the violet scene with Lily Tomlin and the plain Snow White and she poisons shoots him out the window with the f- chair. Yes, that scared the shit out of me. Well, apparently Lily Tomlin was really influenced by like cartoons and wanted to bring that element into it. Oh, look at you with the facts, girl. I yeah. love it. Doing the research. And uh, Jane Fonda was actually the one who made it more comical. It was supposed to be a lot darker when it was first written. Yes. So yeah, because she was the first one that they had. Well, she uh, she came up with the idea. What was that? She came up with the idea for the film. She yeah. had started a production company, and they were looking for a film. She had had a conversation with an organization called Nine to Five. It was a bunch of secretaries who were sort of trying to like get you know workers' rights, and so she wanted to make a drama about all the shit they were doing, and then but she really wanted to work with Lily Tomlin. So she approaches Lily Tomlin's like producing partner and he's like, well, what if we made it a comedy? Now, I would love to know what the first script was like, because I wonder if the first script was a comedy or whether it was a drama. Okay, but then they bring in Colin Higgins, who was known for writing comedies, and then they have him rewrite the script. But what other cool facts do you have for us at this point? Um, Well, I know that uh, the writer showed Jane Fonda this um, old Charlie Chaplin movie. That was really dark. And Jane was like, no, it can't be this dark. And that's one reason why she wanted to lighten it up. Oh, interesting. This this is the director who was the screenwriter or the actual original screenwriter who was a woman? I think it was the the original screenwriter who was a woman. She was the one who was really upset that the director wouldn't let her in. Oh, interesting. The director, which is so interesting because like the whole film is about (laughs) – Men, men's and their power over women, you know, and then the director is like, "No, but you can come during lunch." Yeah, is that what he would say. Yeah, he said, he told her she could come, but only during lunch. But you know, this is it's very common. Often in Hollywood, they don't want the writers on the film because one, they want the film to feel like it's their film, you know, and also their writers can be pains in the asses. I mean, you deal with me. <laughs> on a regular basis like well yeah you've told me some stories but michael also just how neurotic am i on a scale of one to ten give me a day yesterday <laughs> ten yeah so like that's what writers are like okay yeah anyway the following day a mix-up leads violet to accidentally spike heart's coffee with rat poison that's because the box of rat poison she bought at lunch 
is looks just like the sweetener, skinny and sweet. And she's pissed and she's ranting about it, right? Yeah. To there's uh, the African American woman in the, <laughs> who's the break worst room actress. who I love is the one who's like, "Oh, it's not that bad," you know, like it's <laughs> <laughs> like it's okay. It's fine. Everything's fine here. Yeah. Well, I, well, look, black people are used to being passed up for promotions. In fact, if you think about it, the black guy in the beginning of the film, he's like, what? You, you hired some <laughs> right. white lady instead of me? And I've been in the mainly room? And then this black lady's like, just just deal with it. They're, yeah, Because yeah, they're used to they're used to disappointment. Anyway, however, before Hart can drink the tainted coffee, he falls out of his desk chair and hits his head on the credenza desk, which knocks him out cold. Okay, hearing he has been rushed to the hospital. Okay, so they don't mention this in Wikipedia. Dolly Parton rushes. She hears a noise. She goes into the office and sees his feet just up in the air. And he's rushed out to the hospital. So hearing he's been rushed to the hospital, Violet, thinking he is sick from the accidental poisoning. Because what she goes, they're just leaving. Uh, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda are leaving. Oh, my God, can you believe what happened? Then she sees that she accidentally poisoned the coffee. She rushes to the hospital with Judy and Dora Lee in tow. At the hospital, though, Hart, who has regained consciousness, leaves on his own without being seen. He's afraid they're going to charge him for (laughs) x-rays. Which I love that he has all this money (laughs) and he's concerned about, like... A little hospital bill for an x-ray. Yeah. And like that company didn't have health insurance for him. Probably in 1980 they didn't. And the three mistake a dead police witness for their boss. Steal the dead body to prevent an autopsy, stash it in the trunk, and drive off. Soon they discover they've stolen the wrong body, so they smuggle it back into the hospital. This whole set piece, and that's what this is called in film, is a set piece, is... One of my favorite things ever. This whole the whole moment from when he falls on the chair to them leaving the hospital because they left the dead body in the bathroom and the black lady's like, <laughs> We got another stiff in the John. That whole moment is the my favorite part of the whole movie. Oh my god, I found it so stressful. Oh, oh I know. I was I, I've been suffering from anxiety lately and I my ang- my anxiety levels were very high. But tell me yeah, what did, did you think it was funny though? I did. I thought it was really funny. I also love how, like, he knocked his head and he was out the entire time that, like, it took for the ambulance to get there and them to load him up and get him to the hospital. And then he's just like, oh, I'm up. (laughs) Whatever. I'm out of here. Well, they've talked about this before. You know, it always comes up on Reddit where if people – if you actually get knocked out to the point that you lose consciousness – he should have gotten an x-ray. You probably had a major concussion. You would have some sort of brain damage. Right. You know, like that knocking out cold is not a, like a little <laughs> thing that you just wake up from and go like, I have a bump on the head. And right. you passed out cold for like that long. No. Um, I love the moment when Lily, Tom- okay, gosh, there's so many moments I love in this whole bit. Okay. When Lily Tomlin is pushing the body and she gets the doctor's coat on and then that candy striper stops her and asks <laughs> where the coffee shop is and then she goes oh i'm sorry you're a doctor and she goes <laughs> she goes she looks at the name tag and she realizes she sold a doctor's coat and you know they wanted to say fuck off but she says piss off but she right. goes oh i am a doctor then why am i talking to you piss off and she like i love that moment so much and then the scene too when dolly parton and jane fonda are like in like the phone booth and then you see lily tomlin from the right of the frame pushing the dead body across the screen and (laughs) dolly parton's like 
Because <laughs> you stole a dead body. And then, like I was telling you, when they crash, because they're trying to avoid a car, they're speeding, they're so nervous, and they crash into the trash bin. And then they, now the t- wheel won't move, and they're trying to, and they have to get the crowbar. That whole scene when they realize they stole the wrong body, oh my God, I was laughing every time I see it. Well, I tell you, if I commit a murder, I would want to do it with someone like Doralee. She is so calm, she knows what to do. Yeah. And she has the gun. She does have the gun. And I was also <laughs> thinking about, remember, they believe Hart's body's in the trunk. Right. And they tell her, go get the crowbar. And she goes and opens this trunk and she's just moving the body around as if it's like grocery bags. Yeah. She's like, okay, I've done this before. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can tell she's had practice, she's had experience. Yeah. Yeah. Like, everyone should know that Michael has the cutest cat named Gigi that I'm in love with. But also the cutest dog named Baloo. And they are, I have to tell you something, Michael. They're behaving so well. Or are no, they not Gigi's behaving? Just, we don't realize it. No, Gigi's curled up right next to me. And Baloo's curled up on the floor. Although Baloo's a little depressed. Oh, why? Because he was bad today and he got in trouble. <laughs> do, do, do Have you ever noticed that animals do get depressed? Or that they notice when they're in trouble or anything like that? Oh, he acts so sad. I mean, he buries his little nose in his paw and like falls asleep it's really depressing does it make you sad yeah but Gigi doesn't get sad <laughs> she just does she's what she whatever. wants she's a fucking cat anyway Hart turns up alive the next morning much to the shock of Violet Dora Lee and Judy oh that scene you know what it's actually kind of stupid slapstick stuff but I still like it whenever he's walking through the hall and Jane Fonda's like ah and she like throws her folders right <laughs> and then like <laughs> Lily Tomlin comes in and like throws papers in the air <laughs> And no one else seems to be phased by why they're so surprised. No, no one ever goes like, bitch, why would you just throw papers in the air? Because Mr. Hart walked by. (laughs) Right? Anyway, um, and I, you realize, what you're going to say right now, it brings up an important plot hole in a second. Um, Anyway, uh, during a break in the ladies' room, the three speculate on what could have happened, but ultimately decide to consider themselves lucky and simply forget the whole matter. However... Roz, one of my favorites, hiding in one of the stalls, overhears them and relates the conversation to Hart. Now, I'm going to stop right there. We see her, and the, and the joke of it is that she's writing notes on the toilet paper. But then she sees Hart. Hart's, she's written an official memo. Like she's right. typed it up. I just, like, imagine her, like, going to some conference on time blocking. And, like, in her calendar, she has blocked out, like, <laughs> toilet with legs up time so she can overhear all these conversations yeah and then she goes and she like transcribes instead of like if you wouldn't you like if you heard someone was trying to murder your boss or had tried to murder your boss would you then take the time to go to your desk and type up this official memo and then take it or would you go like oh my god i was in the bathroom and i heard xyz i would write up write up the official memo Actually, I think you really would. I think no, it would probably those. take me several hours just to get in touch with my boss. That's so funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> however, Rosheim. Okay, okay. He can. Um, so, so she tells Hart, and Hart confronts Dora Lee about the hospital incident and demands that she spend the night at his house, or he'll have all three of them prosecuted for attempted murder. So I love that Hart hears this, but then I guess Hart realizes that it was a mistake. He must realize that it's a mistake, don't you think? Yeah, and I love that he said we can use this to our advantage. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that's what he said. Yeah. But like 
his advantage was to sleep with Dora Lee. Like Rose Roz has no advantage there. <laughs> yeah, but also now this is just me personally. I'm not really into like rape. So like I not really <laughs> I, nah kind of not no I'm totally against it. in fact what, what I was gonna say is like when I watch porn I the the I have to believe that everybody involved is super into it or I'm super not even even if they're pretending to not be into it I right. if I don't think that they're into it it's just like and I'm not even saying to be like a woke ass bro it's <laughs> really like that's just just I just don't get turned on by it right so for the same reason. I don't even understand why if like if if the person didn't want to sleep with me or felt grossed out by me, I wouldn't want to sleep with that person. But I know there are a lot of gross men who don't feel that way. Yeah, I don't get it either. I there has to be some level of, you know, <laughs> mutual desire there. Yeah, like I wouldn't I would get turned off if I thought the person was grossed out by me. Yeah. But that's how you can tell. It's just all about power. It's kind of gross and weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, yeah, he's an obvious gross. Human being. Anyway, here let me talk about the the plot hole here that I realized when watching it today. Roz was in the bathroom and heard them basically say how they wanted to murder in her head, thinks they wanted to murder Hart. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then Hart, within a few days, goes missing. By the way, she sees them that day. And she's just like, whatever, have a nice weekend, Doralee. Like, it's like so nice. Right. Of and then uh, Hart goes missing for weeks to the point right. where the center went in there. She's not ever suspicious that they've murdered her. That's how you know she's the real psychopath in this movie. Because she just said goodbye to them like nothing else had changed. You know, yeah. like she knows all of the things that like Violet was saying to her. Yeah. Like, oh, I tore right through that memo. Oh yeah, she knows what she's saying. She she's saying, the real. She just lets here. it swing by. She probably never even went to France to learn or at the the Aspen Center. Anyway, anyway, okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, the three kidnap him and bring him. Well, okay, yeah, because they kidnap him because then Dolly Parton freaks out and then she ties him up and then she goes to get Violet and then Jane Fonda. All all the things that they dreamt of during that drug scene come true. Dolly Parton ties up Hart. Uh, Jane Fonda shoots at him. We already saw that Violet almost poisoned him. He fell out of his chair. She shoots him out of the chair. So now he's ready to confront them, right? So they kidnap him and they bring him to his Tudor-style mansion, keeping him prisoner in his bedroom while they find a way to blackmail him, okay? Because he has something on them. The three women discover an embezzlement scheme and must keep Hart tied up at home while they collect evidence on it. Now, let me ask you this. I've seen this movie a hundred times. You know, this is the first time I've ever understood the embezzlement scheme. Did you understand it? Nope. Not one bit. Okay. I finally got what he was doing. They actually explain it. I don't know how I've missed it all the times that I've watched it. He set up this fake company, right? Who basically... Well, I got that part. Yeah, yeah. Where basically Consolidated was buying products through this company. Okay, and then in theory, Consolidated owned these products and they were going to sell them for a profit. Mm -hmm. He was using the money to buy these products and then he sold them and kept all the money. Oh, okay. So that's why. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why the, the warehouse was empty. So all, in theory, Consolidated had like all these uh, items that should have been in that warehouse. Because they bought them for whatever reason. They don't ever say why Consolidated bought these items. 
through his fake company. I don't know why they would buy him through the fake company. And that's why it was so important for Violet to get the invoices. The invoices. She yeah. Did the invoice to prove that they had bought this material and then prove that it didn't exist anymore. That uh, which is so funny because I think. There's still a paper trail. You can prove that he sold all this stuff and then bought new stuff to replace it. It's not over just because you replaced the items. Right. And he was like, oh, I got you. Like if I bought you a microphone, right? Mm -hmm. And then you sold the microphone. Okay. I guess it wouldn't be that hard, but you could replace the microphone. But there is, there is even, I'd have to, it'd take me a lot of work. There would be a paper trail that would eventually show me that you bought another microphone. Right. I mean, maybe he used cash. I don't know. That's true. Uh, I like we're, like we're trying to figure out how he did it. Uh, okay. We're plotting our own. The women use Hart's absence to effect numerous changes around the office in his name, including but not limited to flexible work hours, equal pay for male and female employees, a job sharing program, and even an on-site daycare center for employees with children. Hart is so disliked around the office by male and female employees alike that the only person to question his absence is Roz, whom Violet sends away to France for a multi-week language training seminar. Let's stop there. What did you think of this whole sequence where the women are making all these changes now that Hart is gone? They didn't like show a lot of the changes that they made um, until kind of closer to the end, you know, um, but we'll get to that later. So like you could see they were doing a lot of stuff and that Violet was kind of like the mastermind behind all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was so funny that like, like you said earlier that Roz just like, went to this seminar without questioning anything. She was like, oh, yeah. I mean, she was so... This is the the plot hole again. She was so dedicated to, like, Frank Hart that she, she would have noticed. <laughs> yeah, she would. But I, I am amused by all the little jokes they play on her. She's like... She's like well, there's one scene where she comes in from the office and she goes like, Dora Lee, Dolly Parton, Mr. Hart's not in his office. She's like, what? Let me see. And then she goes in and she's like, well, his jacket's right here. Right. <laughs> and oh my god, I've told him a million times, don't leave this lit cigar here. Oh well. And then also the scene when like she's like, Dora Lee, where's Mr. Hart? And she goes, Um, he just left. And she goes, like, um, uh, Judy, do you see Mr. Hart? And she goes like, Oh my god, she's right, he's right here, Mr. Hart, Mr. Hart. And then it's like Lily Tom in the elevator and they just close it. Right. <laughs> and it totally worked. Yeah. But like, how did they have the time to coordinate that? I don't know. That's why I love that's what that, there's a there's a weird magical like quality to this film that's just so slapsticky that i kind of <laughs> love but yet still strangely realistic and i think and we can do some analysis at the end it let, well, let's, let's save that for the end all right i kind of so, would have loved if like after in the weed session uh when they were all like smoking mm-hmm. if that had just showed up at the end of the film and they woke up and the whole thing they had just like dreamt because <laughs> they got really stoned and fell asleep <laughs> And then it wakes up again, and they had been stoned waking up that they woke up from being stoned. And then they're in Grace and Frankie. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know how how aware you are. Have you ever heard of, it's considered one of the greatest endings in the history of television, the ending of the show Newhart? No, I haven't heard that. Do you know who Bob Newhart is? Yes. Okay. So Bob Newhart was on... A TV show in the 70s called The Bob Newhart Show, right? Where he played a therapist, okay, who's married to a woman played by Suzanne Plachette. You don't need to worry about that, okay? 
<laughs> but he's married to a woman played by Suzanne Plachette. And it's it's actually a really good sitcom. It actually holds up. And it's really about – he, like, runs different group therapies. And so you get to see his patients, and they're all crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And they somehow, like, there's adventures. And there's a dentist in his office and stuff like that, right? But his wife's an important character. It's like, it's like one of those shows, right? And so then that show has its run. Whatever. Then in the 80s, Bob New has another show called New Heart. And in New Heart, he runs an inn. Okay. I love his creative choice with titles. <laughs> he has he runs an inn, and there's all these crazy characters who work at the inn and come through the inn, right? And then they have the final episode of New Heart, right? And the final episode, I don't even know what happens. I don't even I don't know if anyone can tell me what actually happens on the actual episode. But at the very end, <laughs> something's happening, and he walks outside and he gets hit in the head with a golf ball, and he passes out. And then when he wakes up, like he wakes up and he like wakes up and he's like, it's night. And he like turns on the light and he's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's like, I had the weirdest nightmare. And he's like waking up his wife. Wake, wake up, wake up, wake up. And when it's, he wakes up, it's the wife from the old Bob Newhart show. Oh, my gosh. And he recounts and he says, I had this dream that I ran this in and there were all these people. <laughs> and she's like, I go back to bed. And then that, that's the end of the whole series. You know, That's genius. Yeah. It's actually considered probably one of, if not the best ending in the history of television. Okay. So um, let's – we talk about other shows on this show. Right. <laughs> all right. Meanwhile, as Judy is guarding uh, Mr. Hart, her ex-husband Dick – we're going to get to this – comes to ask her to take him back. She refuses, forcibly throwing him out. Um, let's stop there. Today, I got a text message from Michael saying he really loved M&Ms. And it was just like out of the blue. And like – it's a weird ass text message again. Like, I, what kind? Like the one with nuts? Like the one, I don't know. Some weird. I just respond like, I guess I'll just say like I like him too, right? <laughs> and then I watch him like, oh, so Michael, tell us what one of your favorite moments from this movie is. This was my number one favorite moment from the movie, and it was when um, Dick had been stalking Judy. Uh, at this house, which is a whole nother level of creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, he knocks on the door and she, or no, she sees him outside and, you know, lets him in. And uh, then Frank Hart upstairs starts making all this noise. He's starting to escape. So Judy runs up there and he's all hogtied and you know, up on the line. Sorry, what? Is he attached to a garage to open her? Yeah, he was attached to a garage opener, hogtied to it. Yeah. And um, <laughs> he had like, she ran in and, and pushed the button and he went flying up to the ceiling so he couldn't get, you know, get away. Mm-hmm. And that's when Dick comes running up and sees her. And he just thinks that like, this is her new boyfriend and she's into BDSM. <laughs> and so she just gets really mad at him. And she, she says, you know what? That's it. You're out of here. This is the last time I see you. I, you don't have to tell me what to do. If I want to be to, into M&M's, I can be into M&M's. <laughs> Favorite scene. I laughed out loud. Noah, my boyfriend, was in the kitchen at that moment and heard it. And he was even laughing. It was such a funny scene. Oh, he laughed too. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, we're into M&M's, so. <laughs> he related. <laughs> 
Hart's adoring wife, Missy, returns from vacation early, putting the women's plan in jeopardy. Um, okay, I love that scene, too, when she calls Dolly Parton. I, By the way, we have to talk about Loki, how great Hart's wife is. Oh, my God. She's another minor character that just has a you know, fantastic role. She's completely barred out of her mind. Yeah. <laughs> this whole movie. <laughs> totally oblivious. Like, yeah. She's like, where'd you get that? There's a scene where she walks in and Dabney Coleman's on the floor because he's been chasing Dolly Parton around and he's just given Dolly Parton a scarf. And she's like, what are you doing on the floor? And, and oh, what a beautiful scarf, Dorothy. <laughs> and she's like, where'd you get it? And she's like, Mr. Hart. She's like, Mr. Hart's so generous. And she's right. like, <laughs> I just, it's so interesting though, because like the way the lines are written, you know, had it been acted differently, the actress really could have made it seem like she was a lot more suspicious. Especially the scene where she's at the hotel and she calls. <laughs> well, she walks in and he's hogtied to a garage to open her. Right. Like, how did she not? Like, I don't get it. I, the scene where she called, Vi- I think she called Violet. No, she yeah. called Dora Lee to hang her for the oh, flowers right. that she sent. Yeah. Yeah, she called Dora Lee. I was, I was convinced that like that's what was going to give it all up. But she, no, she still didn't get it. <laughs> and he sent her on another vacation. Yeah. <laughs> And then she's laughing. She's like, oh, my God, he's doing some new exercise program. (laughs) I would love to go through life that oblivious. I feel like you'd be so happy. I think my problem is I'm too aware. Yeah. Anyway, Mr. Hart manages to break free and return the stolen items back to the warehouse. Then he escorts the women to the office at gunpoint. I love this scene, too, actually. Hart is appalled by the changes which have been made in his absence, which I love one of them is just a guy with no legs on a wheelchair right. who, who works there now. They were like, hmm, what are some minorities we could get in here? <laughs> like, there was another scene with, like, the... Uh... Wait, wait. The dog can bark, Michael. Michael's so worried about the dog barking. Why Now, why is Baloo barking? Because I think he hears <gasps> someone at the door. Who's at the Someone's door? at the door. Hold on. Okay. Uh, who was it? Um, it was one of it was one of Noah's clients. Yeah, he's no one of Noah's. Noah's a dog walker, mm-hmm. and so he has some dogs come over sometimes. And so Baloo really wants to go out there and play. Uh, no, I know you've you told me this before, but but when when Noah comes home, he smells the other dogs on on Noah. Yeah, he gets he, very jealous. Yeah, he's not like Franklin Hart's wife. He fucking right. is suspicious oh, all the time. He's hip to it. He knows what's going on. <laughs> you know, he he sees Noah on the floor <laughs> with a leash, and he knows where that leash has been. He's like, I'm not falling for this. You're not sending me to to another four week uh, Greek Isle cruise again. I fell for that one time. <laughs> he finds Noah tied up, uh, hog tied to a garage door opener. <laughs> Anyway, uh, he, he so he squirts him back, back to the office at gunpoint. Hart is appalled by the changes which have been made in his absence, but receives an unexpected visit from Russell Tinsworthy, uh, the company chairman who has come to congratulate Hart for increases in productivity and numerous other initiatives. However, he wants the equal pay eliminated, which I think is so funny. And so sad that's still kind of true. Well, that's the thing about this movie is that there's so much of it, which for me was – not shocking, but a little bit surprising about how it's still so relevant today, especially, you know, with the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, it's like, did we really make this little progress? And, you know. Well, that's what's so great about here. the Dolly Parton dream sequence is uh-huh. it's still relevant today when she has heart. Remember, because heart is this, in, in the Dolly Parton dream sequence. She's the heart character. 
and uh, Dabney Coleman plays the Dora Lee character, even though they're the same names. But Dora Franklin Hart now is her secretary, and she mm-hmm. has him come in and she has him like turn around for her. And she like looks at his buns. She calls him like right, that. and she wants him to have the crotch right higher so he can see his dick. Right. Oh, I love that scene. Yeah, and I was like, oh, that does that do that? I'm gonna have I'm gonna have my employees do that. I know, but right? Like, like, oh, <laughs> no. If you rode the crotch up higher, that you'd see their dick more. Um. So, but then he's like, oh, that because when he was doing it to her, no, I mean, I knew it was like jokey, offensive. You know, not jokey, but like old school like madman style offensive but you mm-hmm. realize how gross it is really gross if you have her doing it to a man yeah i mean and i actually you know and i work in real estate and mm-hmm. i there are a ton of real gay real estate agents in dc and i mean i get sexually harassed constantly oh really in these kind of ways mm-hmm. wow what, yeah, what's your like, reaction to it? it what what's your reaction I mean, I just play it off. Usually it's like there's alcohol involved. So it's just, it's not like at the office, but it's usually at like, you know, events and um, outings and those kind of things where there's alcohol involved. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, Margaret Foster is no longer an alcoholic thanks to the company's alcohol rehab program. And Maria- Which I'm kind of disappointed about. <laughs> I know. She's still kooky, though. And Maria Delgado is back with the company on a part-time basis and sharing her workload with another employee. Tinsworthy, the chairman of the board, is so impressed that he recruits Hart to work at Consolidated Brazilian Operation for the next few years. Roz returns from her training and is stunned to discover Violet, Judy, and Dora Lee celebrating Hart's office. And in the epilogue, we learn that Violet finally got promoted to Hart's job. Judy falls in love with and marries a Xerox representative, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Doralee quits and consolidated becomes a country and western singer, and Hart is abducted by Amazons in the Brazilian jungle and is never heard from again. And that's the film. I feel like the, that the this does a fair job of the plot points, but I feel it misses a lot. Is there anything that you felt that was missing from this plot summary? It does cover a lot of it. There's a lot of like the little things that it doesn't really. Um that it doesn't really go over. Like it didn't really go over the scene where they returned the body to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Did it? They just kind of brought, they, they go over, but they kind of just really just brush over it. Cause they don't talk about Which the also, pro- they kind of brush over how they got that body into the bathroom. Yes. In br- the movie. I feel, you know, I have the DVD, like the, like the, like the ultimate edition. I just bought it for $9 mm-hmm. or something. And I think there are deleted scenes that actually, I remember, I didn't watch them this time because we had to come record. But I remember watching the deleted scenes going like, oh, I would have liked to have known that. Yeah, because like I remember that um, Violet stayed in the car mm-hmm. and Dorley and Judy went inside to go just like see about Hart. Mm-hmm. And then they came back and, and Violet's like, what about the body? And Dorley's like, oh, that's already taken care of. Like, wouldn't she have seen her take <laughs> the body out of the trunk? I don't know. I loved Dora Lee's character. She reminds me of my grandma from Mississippi. Oh, does she really? Yeah. One time uh, I w- was visiting her and she, I, my uncle is also named Michael mm-hmm. and she comes running in the room and she goes, Michael, Michael, come quick, come quick. We got to get going, get in the car, get in the car. And so he thinks she's having some sort of medical emergency. Mm-hmm. And so they hop in the car and uh, they start driving down the street and she goes, 
there he is. There she, or no, there she is. Go over there and pull over next to her. And he's like, what is going on? This woman who had come to her at their door had taken my grandma's stick that she used to remove her spider webs. <laughs> and my grandmother got in the car, chased her down <laughs> to get her stick back, yelled at her, and she did successfully get her stick back. I remember, uh, that reminds me of my mom, uh, and I actually wrote this into a pilot for a, a show that I wrote. Um, I would see her sitting for a while in front of the, the living room, looks out to the street in my parents' house. Mm-hmm. And she would just sit by the window looking out. That's not there, my mom. And I asked her, like, what are you doing? And she was obsessed that the people across the street were parking on the curb in front of our own house. Mm-hmm. And she didn't want that. She was going to call the police on them. I'm all, that's public. Anyone can park there. You don't own right. the curb in front of your street. And she goes, your father works very hard so that he can park there. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's a driveway. Right. No, I mean, so I have a driveway as well but it pretty much fits one car but there's a gate if you you so you can fit more mm-hmm. um but the gate's kind of hard to open and stuff so i i do get kind of annoyed when people park in front of my house too oh do you really yeah and it's one thing where i used to like i used to think that was ridiculous until i i moved to this house and um now i, I want my parking spot in front of my house well it's so funny because i know this is a big deal in like cities like chicago i think is a problem where they put shit in front of their house so people can't park there right i think especially during snow snowy times right yeah yeah i have my uh traffic cones ordered on amazon is that real no oh so um okay so let's talk about this now because i've seen so it's i've seen this movie many times since i was a child so it's i i I do recognize that because if it, my brother's seen it probably a million times, so my brother would be like, "Oh, whatever." And there are straight people who love this movie, but mm. it's really very loved by gay men. But I can't tell you why because it's just ingrained in my soul. So my question to you is, why do you think gay men love this movie? Well, I mean, I think gay men will love anytime there's three fabulous female leads. You know, it's just it's going to be a gay film. Um, especially like Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. Um, and of course, Dolly Parton, you know, who doesn't love them, but there's something about it too, where I think that gay men, a lot of times feel, um, like straight men don't always take them as seriously and they don't have the same opportunities that straight men will get. Interesting. Yeah. So I think that they can relate to that as well there was a time uh late last year and i don't don't know if you remember me talking about this where i wanted to write a gay version of nine to five Mm -hmm. okay i basically wanted i would call it almost like a reboot okay Mm -hmm. and i was looking into the rights and all that stuff and i everyone that i told this to at my swanky hollywood parties thought it was a great idea in fact i talked to a somewhat successful female director who actually solved a lot of my problems that I was having with my <laughs> concept of it. Because I originally, in my version of it, I was going to have the gay characters work at a company like Uber. And I remember I had a good name for them. Like, I can't believe there's not a Hitch. I was going to call it Hitch. Oh, now that's going to get stolen. I think they're writing an app called Hitch for something else. But I was going to call it Hitch, like Hitch a Ride. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they worked at a company called Hitch that was like Uber. And it was basically going to be the culture of Uber, but he worked there. And she was like, I remember this was such great advice. She was like, no, 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 no. They have to work at a company like ESPN or a very bro-y company. You know, like, uh, what's another, like, uh, like where it's like very, I can't, she had the perfect one. I can't remember what it was. Like Wolf of Wall Street kind of stock yeah, trading. Yeah, like, it, like it's a company where it's very male dominant and like they're pigs, like gross. And these gay guys working there mean to them. Almost like frat yeah. boy, you know? And I was like, oh, that's so brilliant. And then right after that, and this is a good update here, is um rashida jones i believe it is so for a long time a few years ago maybe like 10 years ago uh jada pinkett smith got the rights to nine to five and was gonna do a a black remake of it just this year like early this year like january of this year rashida jones got the rights and she's gonna do a reboot and i know that jane fonda lily tomlin dolly pardon are involved in that reboot oh interesting yeah i don't know to what extent but they're involved in that reboot. I because wanna... I know there was in the interview that I was reading earlier with the female writer. Um, she was saying that you know, is that she was asked by the interviewer, uh, is there any way there would be like a reunion or a semi reunion in Grace and Frankie? And uh, she basically said Dolly Parton doesn't want to really do that. I don't know if that's she true. Said, she said, to quote, it's nine to five, not 95. Oh, that's cunty. No, <laughs> no. The, the, in fact, it's funny. If you go to the, the bottom of the Wikipedia page, I already knew this because I was following it because I wanted to do a remake of it. But at mm-hmm. the end, right there at the very bottom, it's a possible sequel. And it says, in a 2018 interview, Dolly Parton announced that a sequel is in the works to bring the story into a modern day one. Interesting. So I, I don't think it'll probably be three different women. It'll be like, like Rebel Wilson and Kristen Wiig and uh, Leslie uh, Jones and, and Rashida Jones. Yeah, or something like that. And, and Tina Fey or something like that, right? But um, that would actually be kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm liking that. Like Tina Fey is a Lily Tomlin character, okay? Uh, Kristen Wiig is a Jane Fonda character, and then there's something sort of funny and off about. Rebel Wilson being like the Dora Lee. <laughs> Who would that's the thing with this is when, when you look at the performances, is Jane Fonda is so perfect. She plays that like little ingenue innocent girl so well. Like to me, like I believe that's who she is. Right. And then Lily Tomlin is just playing Lily Tomlin. She's like, that's her in every movie. I love it. But do you know this is Dolly Parton's first movie? I did not know that. It's the first movie she was ever in. She's been a country star. And then it was the first time she wanted to try acting. It was her first movie. And she's so good. She's really good. She's really yeah, good. Yeah, she seems like she's been doing it for a while. And Dabney Coleman was always good in everything he was in. He was like one of those guys, that actors you just saw everywhere. And he was always just really, really, really solid. It's just a really good cast, really good writing. Now, the thing with the writer, Colin Higgins, was famous for writing this movie called Harold and Maude, which I've never seen, but considered a classic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe they will do that one. I think that's actually considered a gay classic as well. He wrote this movie that I have not seen since I was very young, but I remember loving as a child. It's hard to find. Called Foul Play Mm -hmm. with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn. And like a mistaken identity, detective thing. Okay. Okay, guys, we're back. Uh, Michael and I forgot to talk about something, which is Colin Higgins was gay. 
and died of AIDS in the late 80s. In fact, he was working on another film at the time that would bring back Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton. Uh, he was going to bring them back for another film, and he was working on that and then got AIDS and died. Um, Michael, do you think that his gay point of view was important in this film? Do you think that's another reason gay people related was because he was gay? He wrote from the point of view of a gay man. He directed from the point of a gay man. And that's why I think we see that in those little ancillary characters like Roz, the wife, and uh, Margaret. They're the three kinds of characters that gay men would love. Love. Yeah, you... I mean, and especially the way... uh, the little the wit that Lily Tomlin's character has. I mean, Lily Tomlin has so so witty, mm-hmm. but um, like her little responses to Roz were always so funny, um, and that obviously came from a gay man. You know, that just sounds like what you would say to me. <laughs> you know, um, well, also too is that the women were up to hijinks. Those three women were up to hijinks, and I think gay men are always up to hijinks. Right, they were always plotting something. <laughs> yeah, they're always plotting. I have like three plots in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> if I sound distracted, because I'm plotting multiple things. Uh, yeah, and so anyway, we wanted to just mention, and, and I didn't want to fail to mention that Colin Higgins was a gay man who unfortunately succumbed to complications from AIDS. And I think this is a beautiful testament to um, the power and the viewpoint of gay men making it in film, even when it's not about gay people. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, what grade would you give this at, now that we've talked about it? Is there anything that, is there anything you want to say about this movie that we didn't mention? No, I think it, we covered it all that I can think of. Is this a movie that you would recommend to your gay friends to watch? Yes. Will you watch this movie again or would you watch this movie again? I would watch this movie again, but I would want to watch it again in like a year or two. I would love to watch it in like a theater with a bunch of gay men. I really want to watch the deleted scenes. Oh, you know what? As a present, I'm going to mail you the DVD. I have no interest in it. You're welcome. So, um, and then you can watch it whenever you want. Um, Okay. Well, then, you know what? This is a pilot episode. If you guys didn't like this, this is a fucking goddamn pilot episode. Shut the fuck up and don't complain. But give us your thoughts, please, on (laughs) Patreon.com. Michael, why don't you tell everyone your uh, Instagram? Or what do you want people? Do you want people to follow you on social media? And where do you want them to follow you on social media? Yeah, sure. They can follow me on social media. I pretty much only use Instagram. Mm -hmm. And it is at Michael Sumner, S U M N E R underscore. I love that you had to look at your own phone to know your own Instagram account. I know, right? It's because I don't promote it enough. Well, just in case you're new to this show, you can follow me on Instagram, which everyone does. It's the most exciting Instagram in the history of Instagram. At Joe Batanz, <laughs> at J-O-E-B-T-E. How to spell my own name? Let me look at my phone to spell my name. Okay, at cool. J-O-E-B-E-T-A-N-C-E. Now, guys, we also like are new to the music, so I guess this is how like the closing theme, swing, theme song works. Hold. Well, that's this episode of uh, Girls on Film. Michael, goodbye. Goodbye, Joe. And we'll see you guys next time we record an episode. Michael's making the cutest face right now. You should should always make that face. 